Week three of Joyful Hope. We have been focusing on the subject of joy, and uh, we've been walking through the book of Philippians because it is definitely the most joy-filled book in the scriptures. And so today we are on chapter three. And today I want to talk about joy, having your past settled, joy in the present, and joy in the future, because that is what's going on. We get a lot of a personal testimony from Paul in Philippians 3. We get a little bit of his autobiography here, and uh, it just, he says so many great things. So there's only 20 verses, so 21 verses by the end of the day. I think we will have read the entire book of Philippians. So let's just go ahead and hop in. Let's read the first 12 verses. It says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Hey, now let me say that makes this preacher feel good. Uh, I don't always have to bring something new every week, because actually by the time you get finished listening to the message, 80% you've already forgotten. So uh, it's, it's, hey, no problem for me to repeat the same things until you get it. Okay, he says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. So let's give a little bit of a historical background here because you need to know what Paul's talking about because first Paul is addressing some enemies of the Philippian church and he uses some strong words for them. He calls them dogs. He calls them evildoers. And then he uses this word, the mutilators of the flesh. So what is Paul talking about? He's he's actually speaking about a very specific group of people that if you read some of his other books, if you read Acts, you will know that Paul would go in and he would start churches in cities. But then after he would start churches in cities, always there would be a group of people that came in behind him and would try to hinder the work that he was doing. These people were known as the Judaizers, the Judaizers, okay? So Christianity comes from the same tree as Judaism, right? Paul was Jewish. All of the apostles were Jewish. 
uh, Jesus was Jewish, right? And so, well, and we'll see here in a minute that Paul was like, he was very Jewish. He was the Jew of Jews, really. And so, uh, but he comes in and he starts speaking about a new covenant. Okay, this is something, you hear this term new covenant a lot, uh, especially in the Old Testament. So Jesus told his disciples, really while taking communion, right? Hey, this is the blood of the new covenant which is poured out for you. All right, the prophets in the Old Testament prophesied about the day that God was going to make a new covenant with his people. So a new covenant where the law of God is written on people's hearts, and rather than just being written on outward stone tablets, Moses' Ten Commandments, okay? So Paul is going around, and he's going to cities, and he's starting churches, and he's telling people the new way of being right with God is by faith, in Jesus. And actually, Paul has a revelation that says it's actually always been faith. Go back all the way to Abraham. Abraham was, uh, it, righteousness was credited to his account by faith. It's always been by faith. Uh, but some Judaizers came in behind Paul, and basically they were telling people, okay, if you want to be made right with God, Jesus is a good start. Okay, the Jesus guy, that's good, that's a good start. But you've got to do more. You've got to start living actually by the stipulations in the Old Covenant, mainly, you know, the Jewish dietary laws and this, this thing called circumcision. Now, I hope I don't need to explain to you what circumcision is. I don't want to get into too much detail there. But, you know, remember the sign of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, was with Abraham. Abraham was to have all of his descendants, all the males, circumcised. It was a cutting away of the flesh, okay, Remember, the Philippians aren't Jewish. They didn't grow up Jewish. They, they, they grew up, they're what is known as Gentiles, okay? And there was a big dispute, a big debate when Gentiles were getting saved in coming to Christ and becoming people of covenant with God, okay? Is faith in Jesus Christ alone enough? Or do they need to go ahead and start living by some of the stipulations in the old covenant? And, uh, and so this was a big fight in the early church. And uh, I just, I was laughing because I was thinking about like, you know, hey, what if, uh, 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 you know, at the end of every altar call, someone gets saved. You know, we have a, hey, would you please come through the store here? We have a, our next steps class. You know, we have next steps here at the church. I mean, imagine if these Judaizers have started a church, next steps class for them involved a minor surgery. Okay. <laughs> hey, your next step here at uh, the crossing church. Okay, never mind. I thought I was just laughing, you know, and Paul is saying, hey, no longer is that needed. It's not about a cutting, physical cutting away of the flesh. Rather, it's a, where God cuts away the flesh of your heart. He gives you a new heart. And this is what Paul comes to the conclusion as, and this is really good news. Salvation, being made right with God, is not by through earning anything. It's not through works. You are not made right with God by doing enough good things. You're not made right with God by living your life by an external code of conduct. You are made right with God through the free gift of grace offered to you by Christ. The only work he calls us to is to simply believe and trust in Jesus. Man, that is such good news today. It leads uh, G. Walter Henson to say this. Paul, Paul's bold claim that all believers in Christ 
are included in the circumcision, in the people of God, does not imply that Jewish people are excluded from the people of God. Paul is not relegating all Israel to those dogs. Those dogs were those who refused to recognize that Gentile believers in Christ have full covenant membership in the people of God. You know how amazing that is, that Chad, a Gentile in America 2,000 years later, uh, later, that I can actually, uh, I can be grafted in to God's holy people and all the promises that applied to Abraham apply to my life today because of what Jesus did. I am a full, I'm not a half member, I am a full covenant member of the family of God simply by believing in Jesus Christ. And he says, in verse 2, he says, or verse 3, he says, we are, those who believe in Jesus are actually the real circumcision. Paul gives three things or uh, three characteristics that mark those who are living by faith. He says, we are the real circumcision who live by faith. And he says these three things about us. He says, we, number one, we worship by the Spirit. Number two, we boast in Christ alone. And number three is that we put no confidence in the flesh. These are three things that characterize people of faith in Jesus. First, he says, we worship by the Spirit. Okay, this is so important. For Paul, the defining characteristic of those who are in Christ is the Spirit of God. You can go read his other letters, go read Acts, and you will see over and over again, the operating system which powers the life of the believer in the new covenant is not an external rule book. Rather, it's an empowering, abiding spirit which dwells in us. In Galatians, what does Paul talk about? He talks about the fruit of the spirit. In Romans, what's the climax of the book? Romans 8, life in the spirit. In the book of Acts, what is the linchpin argument that the Gentiles should be fully included in the family of God? Full stop, no exceptions. Go back and read it, Acts 10 and 11. God tells Peter to go to a Gentile's house named Cornelius to share the gospel with him. As he's preaching the gospel to this Gentile, the Spirit of God comes upon those Gentiles and they start speaking in tongues and prophesying. And people come to Peter and they question him and they say, dude, are you eating with Gentiles? Are you hanging out with people that aren't in the covenant family of God? Are you accepting them as children of God? What does Peter say? He says, the same Spirit the very same Holy Spirit that fell on us at the beginning, that fell on us in the day of Pentecost, the same Spirit that fell on us has now fallen on them. And he says, who am I to stand in the way of God? It was the Spirit that marked them. The Spirit of God for Paul is the prime mover in the believer's life. It is your, he is your guide. He is your companion, your power. He is the wind that fills our sails. He is the breath that you breathe that brings life and vitality and action. It's impossible for you to do anything for God or with God without the person of the Holy Spirit. I can't stress this enough how much we need the Spirit of God in our lives. Yet, yet, here's what I find. That the Spirit of God is often the most ignored person in our lives and even in our churches when we gather. But Paul says it's the thing that should mark us. This week, did you ask the Holy Spirit to help you? Have you asked the Holy Spirit to lead you? 
Have you asked the Holy Spirit to guide you? Are you depending upon the Holy Spirit for your everyday life? Are you trusting him or are you trusting in your own strength and power? That's the first thing. We worship by the Spirit. The second thing is we boast in Christ alone. Those who are saved by grace and not by works should lead to a life of giving glory to Christ. Other translations say we, we glory in Christ or we exult in Christ. He is our praise. He is our help. He's the, objects of our affection. He's the object of our affection. Because we realize that if we don't have Christ, we don't have anything. You see, true joy and confidence does not come from a man or a woman who's trying to stand on their own two feet. But rather, joy and confidence come through those who live a bowed down life. They live on their knees in submission and humility before God. Go back and read the, the text that we just read. Several times Paul uses words like count. Three times actually he talks about, I count this as loss. Or uh, he uses words like loss and gain and counting. And what is, he, what is he doing here? Paul is using actually accounting terms. Every business owner that, that you know has two uh, columns. You have a profit column and you have a loss column. You've got assets and you've got liabilities. Paul is taking inventory of his life. And as he's looking at his losses and his gains, he's saying, you know what? All that I used to be, when I was living in my own strength, when I had this great pedigree behind me, he says, all of the stuff in the past, I actually count that all as loss. But now I have gained Christ. And because I've gained Christ, all that other stuff is just rubbish. So he, Paul used to be pretty proud of his performance. He used to be proud of his pedigree. He had honor and stature and respect and fame. And he had a name for himself. He's a rising star in the Jewish community. And one day it all changed. Paul's value system changed. The way in which he life changed. Why? Because he had an encounter with Jesus Christ. He used to look at himself. He used to look to himself to save himself. But for a brief moment, when he sees Jesus, and he realizes that on his very best day, his very pre best performance, when he got it all right, on the day when he did everything right, it was still not good enough compared to Christ. In fact, he says, the righteousness I used to have, I've come to realize it's garbage. It's refuse. To put it literally, he says, it's a dung pile. <laughs> That's what he literally says. Um, I was reading about uh, something called deprivation theory. I don't know if you've ever heard of deprivation theory. But deprivation theory is the idea that people determine their status based on comparison with others. So their experiences illustrate um, you know, a phenomenon of, called relative deprivation. Uh, it was first described by a researcher who observed soldier satisfaction with promotion opportunities that were based on comparing their own situation to that of other soldiers in their own branch, not soldiers in other branches. So basically, people determine their value by comparing their self to others. That's what deprivation theory talks about. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a book. It's called David and Goliath. It's pretty good. He talks about deprivation theory in one of his books. 
He tells the story of a girl who graduated from a high school with excellent grades, excellent test scores. She was the top of her class at her particular high school, and she wanted to be a scientist. She chose uh, Brown University, which is an elite school. Okay, so she gets to college, and you know what happens? She struggles in chemistry, and she feels stupid compared to her other classmates. She was always the smartest at her high school. She was always the smartest where she was, but now she's in a room full of people that were all the smartest at their high schools growing up, and now they're all together in one room, and you know what? Because she's surrounded by other people, she's comparing herself to other classmates, and she feels dumb, and she feels stupid. You know what she does? She ends up switching her major to have nothing to do with science. She completely leaves science. He talks about another student who in high school was a valedictorian, and he started out at Harvard University studying physics, a brilliant kid, but he saw that he wasn't doing as well as his peers, and he decided to go and study law instead. It's, they, they thought they were doing good relative to others, but then they got in a room with really smart people and realized, oh, maybe I'm not the smartest person in the room always. And Paul in this scripture, he's actually talking about <laughs> deprivation theory. Paul was always the top of his class spiritually speaking, if you will. His performance spiritually was always better than everyone else's. And he thought he was the stuff. But one day, Jesus appears to him. And when he sees Jesus, and then he looks back at himself, he realizes, I am not the stuff. Jesus is the stuff. And, and Paul compares himself to Christ, and he says, you know what? I've come to find out I am spiritually bankrupt. I've got nothing good in me. I've got nothing good in my flesh. I must put my confidence in Jesus. Paul is a man that changed the world. Do you ever wonder how? I mean, the reason the Western world is the way it is today, the reason the American, our American society is even the way it is today, the Apostle Paul has a large part of that. I mean, there's a man that lived 2,000 years ago, but we're talking about his writings today. It shaped our society. What's his secret? How did he think? What was his mindset? It was simple. His mindset was this. Christ is everything. And I'm willing to lose all things. All my money, all my status, all my accomplishments. I'm willing to lose it all to gain Christ. He says, you can have the world, you can have the stuff. Jesus is the pearl of great price. The one that you're willing to give up everything for that one pearl. The question today is, what are you willing to lose in order to gain Christ? So we, live by the, we worship by the Spirit, we boast in Christ. The last thing he says is, we put no confidence in the flesh. We put no confidence in the flesh. This is like my favorite part. Because Paul walks us through his pedigree. He shows us all the things he used to have confidence in, but now has no confidence in these things to make him right with God. He had the pedigree, okay? He has the upbringing. He has the family line. He has high personal achievement and personal attainment in the religious world. He's educated as the best of the best. Now look, when you get to verse 4 in chapter 3, Paul is talking serious smack. I mean, he is smack talking. I love it. He says, I got reason to be confident in the flesh. He said, I, he said, I was circumcised on the eighth day. What's he saying? He's saying, I was born into this. 
I ain't no proselyte from paganism. My mama and my daddy took me to the temple on the eighth day as prescribed in the law, and they put the mark of the covenant on me. He said, of the people of Israel, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. What's he saying? He's saying, my great, 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 great granddaddy was Abraham. You heard me? And the tribe I belonged to was Benjamin. Show me, yeah, right, show me the Benjamins. You know, this is, he said, I, I am, that means my great-great-grandmother was Rachel, the loved and beautiful wife of, wife of Jacob. Not that ugly cross-eyed one named Leah. That's what he's saying. Not Leah, but Benjamin, as in the tribe uh, that Israel's first king came from. The tribe was the full brother of Joseph. He says, we're favored. We have a double portion. All these things, uh, all these Jews are running around here. And you know what? He said, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. All these other Jews running around Rome, they could only speak Greek, the language of Rome, but not me. My mother tongue is Aramaic and Hebrew. When I go to the synagogue, I don't go to the Greek service option at 11. I go to the 9 a.m. where they only speak Hebrew from the scroll. That's right, homies. I can read Isaiah in its original language. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee. I belong to the strictest sect of Judaism. I don't just follow what Moses said in the written law. I follow what all of our teachers have taught us since Moses. Hundreds and hundreds of rules about rules. None of y'all more holy than me. I wash my hands before I eat, during my meal, and after my meal. I am clean. And then he says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Any enemies to God and Judaism, I'll track them down. I'll snuff them out. And he says, I am blameless under the law. He says, I led an exemplary way of life in every way. I conformed my outward behavior to the letter of the law. I was the model Jew. I was the one everyone could look to to hold the line. I won't budge an inch. And he says, but yet, when I met Jesus, when I encountered the risen Jesus, when he knocked me off my horse and he blinded me with his glory, I realized all of that was nothing. All of that meant nothing. All of those things got me nowhere with God. I could impress everyone else on the outside, but God was not impressed with me or my performance. You see, Wearsby says it like this. Paul had enough morality to keep him out of trouble, but not enough righteousness to get him into heaven. It was not the bad things that kept Paul away from Jesus. It was the good things. You know, it's not the vilest of sins that keep people from going to heaven. It's their own goodness. It's people thinking they're okay. I'm a good person. I'm not as bad as those people over there. I try to help people. I'm kind. I'm tolerant. I'm open-minded. I'm not a bigot. I put my shopping cart up and never leave it in the parking lot. I recycle. What are you putting confidence in today? What are you trusting in to save your life? Or actually... Where are you getting your worth from? What makes you feel valuable? Maybe you say, I, I get my worth from how successful I can be. I get my worth from my kids succeeding in school or sports or the arts. I get my worth from being a mom or a dad. I get my worth from achievement and being known. I get my worth from what people think about me. Listen, Paul is telling us in Philippians, the gospel came to set you free. Jesus came to free you from your worth being dependent upon your performance or what the mob on social media says about you. The gospel came to free you from legalism where you're always insecure and unsure about your relationship with God. 
You're never sure and you're always working tirelessly to be accepted and loved. But I want to tell you today, and Paul came to tell you, Tim Keller says it like this, the gospel comes to tell you that you are more broken and sinful and damaged than you would ever care to admit. But at the same time, you're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever dared to hope. That is good news. That should bring you joy. So you know what? I say go ahead and just let out a big sigh of relief. Okay? The performance trap is over. It's all about Christ. So go ahead. Breathe in. Breathe out. Do you feel good? Do you feel relieved? All right, good, because you're going to need it. Because just because Paul has the righteousness of Christ doesn't mean he just sat back and rested on his laurels and he chilled. No, he didn't. He didn't quit running. He just changed races or he changed motivations, rather. You see, he, he used to race to be approved by God and by men. But now he runs the race because God qualified him to be in the race. And he belongs there. And he's running for the kingdom of God and for the glory of Christ rather than the glory of himself. Paul's obsession in life was Christ. He had no other agenda. He clearly defines to the Philippians what his goal is. Christ. And when you go back and you see the narrative of his past and his new Christ-centered convictions, upon these convictions, he's going to springboard now into his present. See, he talked about his past, how he used to think his past, what it meant, but how God took care of it. But now he's going to tell you how he lives in the present and in the future. First, the present. Philippians 3.12. Let's start there. He says, Not that I've already attained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything, any of you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you also. Only let us hold to what is true to what we have attained. Christ, for Paul, he's the means and the end. Knowing Christ, Paul says, what, what is Paul's goal? What is Paul working toward? This is it. He wants to know Christ completely. He says he stretches toward, with everything in his body, he's stretching towards one thing, to know Christ. Christ. And he, he says, I haven't fully obtained this yet, and I, and I won't fully attain it until the resurrection of the dead, but that doesn't keep me from stretching for it. Complete knowledge of who Jesus is. The question is today, do you know Jesus? Not just, you know, facts about him. Paul knew facts about Jesus. Paul knew who Jesus was. He lived during Jesus's day. He had, you know, he knew about Jesus but when he had a revelation of Jesus and he saw him for who he really was and he met him, oh, that changed it all. Now he knows Jesus and he, and he doesn't just kind of know him. He really knows him. He wants to continue to know him. And I think sometimes as believers, we're just settled to know the story. We're just settled to know the gospel. And that's good. I'm, I'm all down for a general knowledge of Jesus and general revelation. That's great. But that's not the goal. 
The goal is to fully know him. Paul has allowed the Philippians to know his goal and, and to let them know it hasn't been reached yet, but how's he going to reach the goal? How's he going to finish the race? How's he going to fully know God? He tells us two things. He says, I forget the past. See, we got to forget what's behind. That means the bad things, like the things he had done that he wished he hadn't have done, like persecuting the church. He's got to forget all that. He's got to leave the guilt and the shame behind. It also means the past good things, the achievements. Dwelling on the success of the past will hinder further progress. And he says, I do this one thing. I focus on this one thing which is in front, the goal to completely know Christ. And he paints this picture of a runner who stretches forward with all of his might to that finish line. All of the efforts that we live in life really should be to advance the knowledge of Christ. Paul is running the race to know Jesus fully and completely. What are you running your race for? What are you stretching for? What are you leaning towards? You know, it seems often today people only think about this present life and all it has to offer them. Christians, they do their best to make this earth, their, you know, they're, they're trying to make earth their eternal home with little assessment of their heavenly citizenship. We need the mindset of Paul. May the Holy Spirit do for us what Paul believed he would do for the Philippians, to give us a revelation that our calling is from heaven and our prize is heaven. And may we live for eternity. This is so important because this is where hope comes from. Hope is an ever forward calling. Hope is pulling us towards the future. Hope is the confident expectation of a promised future that awaits us in Christ. And hope when you're forward-looking and forward-moving, it actually revolutionizes the present and transforms the present. Where was Paul's mind? It was on heavenly things. Verse 17 says, Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes and walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame, whose minds are set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables us, enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul is admonishing the Philippians. He's saying, hey, where's your head at? You know, I played sports growing up, and that's something my dad would ask me all the time. Boy, where's your head at? Where's your head at right now? Like, we're playing basketball. And that's what Paul is saying to the Philippians. He said, Philippians, where's your head at? Is it stuck on just what's going on in earthly things? Or do you have an ever focus, uh, eyes on the prize of completely knowing Christ? And that means at the very end, you're ready for his return. Or are you thinking about, this, just this earthly life or even things of the past. He, he talks about people that are enemies of the cross whose bellies or whose appetites are their God. Reminds me of the children of Israel after God delivers them and they're in the wilderness and God is feeding them supernaturally manna from heaven. But yet they had an appetite and a desire 
for the things of Egypt. They complained and they said, we want to go. We're tired of this manna. We don't want this God food. We want Egypt's food. We want to go back to Egypt where they have the leeks and the onions and the garlics and the cucumbers. And so they were living in the present and God was, had delivered them, but yet they had an appetite for the things of the past. You know, you know, I think there's a lot of people that come to church, but they still crave the old ways of life. Listen, we've got to develop an appetite for the things of heaven, not an appetite for the things of the past or the things of this world. In fact, you're not just supposed to love God. You're actually supposed to start hating sin. You're supposed to develop a hatred for sin. I'm not, I'm not saying you'll no longer be tempted. You will be tempted. But, and, but you see, even though you're tempted, here's what happens. You've tasted the old things. You know where the old things lead. It leads to slavery. It leads to bondage. It leads to destruction. You've got to develop an appetite for heaven where there's joy and peace and righteousness in the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit has to develop the right appetites within us. This is something you should pray about. God, give me an appetite for heavenly things, not just earthly things. Paul says you got to put your mind in heaven because that's where your citizenship is. You see, Philippi was actually a colony of Rome. Philippi, the city where the Philippian church is, was 800 miles away. So it was actually located in Greece. Philippi is a major Greek island. But even though they were a major Greek island, they didn't live by Grecian laws and by Grecian policy. Philippi was governed by and adhered to Roman law. So though Paul is saying, though your physical location is earth, you're actually just a colony of heaven on earth. And so you don't live your life dictated by the world around you, but you actually live your life and you govern your life by the laws of heaven and by the culture of heaven. I live my life on the earth by heaven. It led Warren Wiersbe to say this. He says, there's a tremendous energy in the present power of a future hope. Let me say that again. There's a tremendous energy in the present power of a future hope. Because Abraham was looking for a city, he was content to live in a tent. Because Moses looked for the rewards of heaven, he was willing to give up the treasures of earth. Because of the joy that was set before him, Jesus was willing to endure the cross. Because of the fact that Jesus is returning, it is a powerful motive to live a, to live a dedicated life today in service in God today. You see, Paul had his mind on the future return of Christ. And because his mind was on the return of Christ, it transformed the way he lived in the present. Here's the question that I end with. Do you live your life thinking about the day, that one day that you are going to stand in front of Jesus, that Jesus is going to the Bible talks about the judgment seat of Christ where Jesus is actually, you're going to, you will give an account. Oh, your life is not, I know a lot of people want to call their own shots and live their own life. But here's the deal. You're going to have to give an account for your life because actually your life's not your own. You didn't determine to be here. You didn't choose to be here. God chose for you to be here. You're not breathing your own air. That's God's air you're breathing. And you will give an account for your life. And Paul is saying, you need to focus on that day. 
focus on heaven because it's coming quicker than you think. Because one day you'll have to give an account for your life. And if we'll stay focused on that, it will change the way we live in the present. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a Philippians 3 church where we're not trying to earn or gain your love. But Lord, all of our self-righteousness is garbage. But we put our hope and our confidence and our trust, not in ourself, but in you. Lord, I pray you'd help us in this present moment to strain forward like a runner in a race, to be ever pressing forward and moving forward and heading forward, not looking in the back, forgetting the things that are behind and focusing on that which lies ahead. We are citizens of heaven. Let our minds be on the things of heaven and it will transform, that hope will transform the way we live in the present. Pray this all in Jesus' name, amen, amen. That is Philippians 3, joy in the past, present, and the future. Hey, we'll see you next week at The Crossing, 9 or 11 o'clock live, 10 a.m. virtual church. Have a great afternoon.